We are going to energize the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by the former First Minister of Wales from 2009 to 2018, Carwin Jones. Welcome to the podcast, Carwin. Thanks very much, Will. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, so the first question uh, that I'd like to ask is you were first elected um, to the, the Welsh Assembly in the first set of elections back in 1999, which is, of course, over 20 years ago now. So looking back on that first election, how do you feel that the Assembly has changed Wales? And do you think that it's changed your opinion of politics in Wales, being a member of the Assembly for such a long period? Well, there's been a huge amount of change in that time in Wales. In 1999, remember, the Assembly, as it was called then, was a very weak body. It had no powers to pass its own primary legislation. It was dependent on Westminster for everything it, uh, it did. It had no powers to raise its own funds. Uh, and it was a poor relation, really, to the Scottish Parliament. We've come a long way now. We had a tax-varying, law-making Parliament, something that uh, 20 years ago we could only have, have dreamed about. And certainly it's created a sense of identity in Wales that perhaps wasn't there to the same extent before. People are far more aware now of the existence of the Welsh Parliament, the existence of the Welsh Government. The last year and a half has emphasised that with, uh, yeah. with COVID-19. Uh, and you know, Wales is not like Scotland in the sense that people, most people in Wales get their news through print media printed in England that don't produce Welsh editions. In Scotland, it's very, very different. So there was always that... Uh, problem in getting across what devolution was about uh, and what devolution was doing post-1999, which is now largely changing. We're seeing new print media operations starting up in Wales. Uh, people always got their Welsh news from, from broadcaster media. Hopefully, the Fleet Street papers will realise that simply pumping Wales full of irrelevant news is not really the way forward for them. <laughs> now, during that period, of course, Labour has... Um dominated the parliament and been in government for um, all the time since 1999. What do you think is the explanation for why Labour has had such uh, longevity in the in the Welsh parliament? You don't keep on winning elections unless you can demonstrate delivery. Mm-hmm. No party has a right to win elections. You know, people sometimes say to me, well, you know, it's Wales, people <laughs> are going to vote Labour. Well, that, that's not the case. We never won a majority, remember? I was involved in two, uh, three coalitions, really, uh, and that meant having to work with other parties. And that created a culture post-99 of cross-party working that doesn't exist in the same way in Westminster. I mean, we didn't work with the Tories and they wouldn't want to work with us. That's just the way you know, we accepted that on both sides. But the idea that somehow you must be able to govern alone as a party is not really something in Wales that that you know we expect, we aspire to it. Mm-hmm. But we don't expect it because it's it's happened so rarely in the past. It's a bonus when that happens. But people will not carry on voting for you if they think that you're no good. Mm-hmm. And people keep on voting Labour in Wales. And that, to me, is a sign that we've been able to show that we've delivered over that time. I mean, and importantly, I can't think of a single occasion where we've made a promise in the manifesto that we've then broken. Mm-hmm. And that level of credibility, I think, does come through to people in Wales. You know, nobody can, could throw any allegation at us that we promised the earth and delivered the thing, because that's not where we were. Our manifestos are always thought through, considered, and, you know, we avoided any temptation to make promises that we knew we couldn't keep. Mm. Um, 
one thing that I find quite interesting, particularly coming from uh, a part of England where uh, people are crying out for more devolution and uh, greater powers, is that there are uh, movements in Welsh politics, the abolish the uh, Welsh Assembly Party uh, particularly, that seem to want to limit the amount of um, devolution uh, that occurs in Wales and to, and to get rid of the, the, the Welsh Parliament. I mean, wh what is the thinking behind that? Because it seems, uh, from my point of view, to be it's something that seems quite ridiculous to want to uh, have fewer powers rather than to uh, to make the most of, of, the, of the powers that there are in Wales at the moment. Well, you have to remember that these groups polled 4% you know, of the vote. Mm. They're not. They're not widespread. They're not. They don't have mass popular support. Mm. A lot of it is down to a dislike of Welshness, uh, going back to a sense of overarching British nationalism. Basically, mm. they don't like the Welsh language very much. They don't like this idea of Wales. You know, if you look mm. at some of them, they say, "Well, Wales should be following the English national curriculum." It's. It's a. I mean, really, it's. It's a. It's the death throes of uh, an anti-Welsh agenda, basically. Mm. You know, what is this Welshness? Wales, should, Wales isn't the country, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and so, you know, we have to remember that in 1999, nearly 50% of the population didn't vote for the establishment of, of a devolved assembly. You know, now, opinion poll after opinion poll shows that that's at least halved, you know, if not more. The reality is that, that these people are a small movement. And if you speak to most people in Wales, they will tell you that they believe the Welsh government has done a better job of handling uh, of handling coronavirus, uh, and that's been you know, nobody would have chosen the circumstances, of course, mm, but that's been uh, important in embedding the idea of I mean, they would call it devolved government, but devolved mm. government in the minds of the people of Wales. On the point of coronavirus, as, as you say, the Welsh government have been. Um... Uh, extremely proactive in rolling out the vaccine and um, have, in, in, in some instances, done uh, better than the uh, the Westminster government. Why do you think that the, the Welsh government, particularly in terms of the, the vaccine rollout, which Wales has done incredibly well in comparison with other countries around the world, wh why do you think Wales has done so well in, in that regard? Well, uh, determination, I think, is the word that I'd, uh, I'd use. Hmm. I think all governments at the start of the coronavirus pandemic found it difficult to, to take the right decisions and to work out what worked and what didn't because there was no evidence really um practical evidence that, that demonstrated what was the most effective way of dealing with coronavirus you have to rely on, on the expertise of those people around you sure if you were in government and and then take your own decisions but yeah there was a very strong focus on vaccination uh, and on rolling out the vaccination as quickly as, as possible and you know wales has the highest vaccination rate in europe I think it's the second highest in the world. Yeah, and that's something we we can be proud of. It's not a competition. You know, mm, it's, you know, it's not, this is not a race. And one of the things that I, you know, never liked, and this was something the UK government were guilty of at the start of of the pandemic, is turning this into some kind of competition mm. between different governments. You know, we, yeah. we we were all ahead of each other and behind each other at different stages of this uh, pandemic, but. What is important in Wales, especially considering that the population, the average age in Wales is slightly older than mm. the UK average, to be able to roll out the vaccination uh, as quickly as we have, I think it's been hugely important in terms of protecting our people. Um, had you been First Minister at the time that the pandemic had occurred, would there have been anything that you may have done uh, differently to Mark Drakeford or, or would you have followed a, a similar plan to the, that which uh, he followed? I would. I don't have the same access to <laughs> advice as Mark mm. would have, but I can say quite clearly that I think Mark has handled this extremely well, mm. uh, and I can't see there's anything I would have done differently. I must say, 
Uh, I think he's, he's taken some difficult decisions and unpopular mm-hmm. decisions at the time, uh, but he's been proven right uh, on each and every occasion, to my mind. Uh, and that is that's been something that's shown the the character of his of his leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's very difficult to say what would you have done something differently in a, in, in a particular circumstance. I have to say, looking at it from where I am now, uh, and looking at it, I think from the view of most people in Wales, I think the Welsh government's done a very good job. Mm. Now, we mentioned uh, the abolish the Welsh Assembly Party a moment ago, but of course, another party that takes the opposite uh, view, view in certain ways is, uh, is Plaid Cymru, which, of course, uh, advocate for Wales to be uh, an independent uh, country. Now, um, independence has been a growing movement in Scotland, of course, for a number of years, and it seems to be growing a little bit uh, in Wales as well, though not as much um, in Scotland. Why do you think that the um, independence movement in Wales has not been as pronounced as that in Scotland? It goes back to the 70s and oil. <laughs> the independence movement in Scotland has its roots in, in oil. Mm. The money that oil generated doesn't generate much now, and we live in a world of climate emergency. <laughs> but that's what drove Scottish nationalism. You know, the idea was that Scotland could be better off if it controlled its own oil resources. Now, mm. we didn't have that. Our coal industry was declining and had been declining mm. for years. You know, the, the, if you spoke to people in Wales, what do you think of independence? They wouldn't necessarily oppose the idea, mm-hmm. but they would say to you, we can't afford it. You know, why would we do that? You know, wh- why would we put ourselves at financial risk? That's changed. Mm-hmm. You must young people. I mean, the support for independence now is higher than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. Still only about a third, I'd say, mm-hmm. of the electorate. Uh, and part of that has been driven by the, by, by the Brexit referendum because you know, financial considerations are no longer as important. The Brexit, I mean, we could, I think, seriously argue that we'd be better off financially <laughs> not being in mm. Europe, as we take a different view. But it was all to do with the heart rather than the head. And this is what's driving uh, the pro-independence movement. It's, mm. you know, okay, uh, we think we can do better than, we, than we're doing now. Let's do it. You know, let's take that step. Not my view, mm-hmm. but certainly a view that, that's gained ground, particularly in the last year and a half. A lot of people said to me, well, look at the shower in, in Whitehall. Why were we even stuck with them? Look at the mess they made of of, uh, of COVID. Why not consider independence? They'd be people who you know would never have thought about it in the past. Mm. Still a minority. Mm-hmm. You know, if you had a vote tomorrow, um, the result would be would be clear. But there's no doubt it's grown significantly over the past two years. Mm. So, how do you think then that you would be able to um, in Wales advocate for the continuation of the union? What sort of arguments do you think that you would put across to people who'd say that you know? As, as you said there, well, look what's going on in Westminster. We could do better on our own. How, how do you think you would argue against those people? Well, you have to remember that one of the reasons for the success of Welsh Labour in recent times is that Welsh Labour is a party that has harnessed those people of a strong Welsh identity. Mm. We didn't, you know, the Scots lost those people to the SNP. We never did. Mm. Uh, you know, a number of people have said to me how strongly Welsh they feel. That's why they vote Labour. Mm-hmm. And they don't see plied you know, because they're not, they're not attracted to the idea of independence, but they're mm-hmm. very much attracted to the idea of what Mark Drayford has described as home rule, mm-hmm. which is the idea the UK needs huge reform. I, I would not um, support the UK in its current form. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to fall apart. I think the UK has many things that, that can commend itself to the people of Britain, but it needs reform in order to survive. Mm-hmm. For me, that means you know, four, four nations who pool their sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you don't have one supreme or one parliament that claims that it's supreme, mm-hmm. that isn't working at the moment, there needs to be reform of the UK's constitution. If you can, you know, if you can say the UK has a constitution, that's another mm. debate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so 
I, for me, independence is not the answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, home rule in the sense of uh, significant autonomy mm-hmm. within the UK, I think is the answer. Mm-hmm. The problem is that I don't think the UK government get that. Mm-hmm. And I think the longer that goes on, the more in danger the union becomes. Mm. Do you think then that to perhaps ensure that there is a continuation of um, the union, one of the points that has been made is that there is a a Scottish parliament, a Welsh parliament and a a national assembly in Northern Ireland. Do you think that then in, in, in a way to make things a bit more balanced, that perhaps there should be, uh, an English parliament, or do you think that that distracts from some of the greater underlying uh, problems that have caused fragmentation of the union? Well, the great difficulty is what do you do with England? Mm. It's so big, mm. uh, and I don't, I don't think people in England would necessarily argue for their particular region. Define, I mean, define that in the first place. We know mm-hmm. what is the northwest of England? Where does yeah. it end? Where does it begin? Uh, I don't think people would necessarily want to have a law-making tax-varying parliament. But they wouldn't want to see a level of, of devolution. So, to my mind, you know, one way of doing it, you know, there are many suggestions, would be you do have an English Parliament. Mm-hmm. It would be a matter then for the English Parliament to decide what devolution would look like in England. Mm. Uh, one way you could do it would be to have four parliaments, and then you'd have a union parliament, mm-hmm. replacing perhaps the House of Lords, uh, that would deal with those issues that. Uh, all the four nations had decided were better dealt with at, at, at that level. For example, mm. borders and immigration, fiscal and monetary union, defence. You know, mm-hmm. there, there are strong arguments that, that they could be dealt with by, as it were, a union parliament. This is very radical. You know, there are other mm-hmm. models uh, that can work, but but we can't carry on with a situation where effectively devolved powers are lent. Mm. Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. They're not, they're not there as of right. They're as lent by the Westminster yeah. Parliament. And that, yeah, people will say to me, well, yeah, okay, fine, legally, that's right. But practically, well, I've worked in that environment. And I can see the, the, the battle that's taking place at the moment. But you, mm-hmm. you, you know, they would love to decentralise. Mm. Uh, and the elected devolved parliaments. You know, this, this is, we have a UK government that doesn't respect conventions. Mm. So I think this can only get... Uh, worse. So for me, yes, an English Parliament is a possibility. Uh, you know, people have raised very valid points about, well, you know, how does that work with a with with union Parliament? Surely, you know, the, 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 the First Minister of England would be almost as powerful as the Prime Minister of the UK. And yeah, mm-hmm. there would need to be you know, quite heavily demarcated responsibilities. Mm. Uh, and that's not something we have in the UK. Everything's a blur mm. in the UK Constitution. Um, now, just turning uh, to your time as uh, First Minister, when you first became First Minister, Labour uh, was in government, and when uh, you left, it was a year before uh, one of Labour's worst defeats. What do you see as the direction for the Labour Party in the UK? Do you think that there are certain changes that need to be made in terms of policy or attitudes to get Labour to connect uh, better with the, the wider uh, public or or what? what? What do you think Labour needs to do to, to win the next election? I think the first thing we have to accept uh, and then do something about is that in many parts of England, particularly the northeast of England, a bunch of public school boys seem to be better connected to the local population than our own people. 
Uh, and that, that, that to me is, is ridiculous. You know, I'm, I'm speaking as the first head of government in the UK to have gone to a comprehensive. Mm. That's so ludicrous. Yeah. The situation is that you know the, the 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 system that educates the vast majority of people across the UK doesn't produce leaders, mm-hmm. uh, and that that's, you know, that's a huge societal problem for us. Yeah. I don't think we should be trying to play the toys at their own game mm-hmm. uh, and overdoing this sort of you know flag waving patriotism. Mm-hmm. And I think that would that would look you know I, I think there are difficulties there for us. What then is the answer? I think it's radical policies. In 2017, we had a manifesto that was, you know, pretty radical uh, and proved to be quite popular. Proved to be quite popular, and I think there is some mileage in looking again at that manifesto to see what we can bring out that that, that will be popular and put clear water, clear red water, to use a phrase <laughs> invented by Mark Drayford actually when he wrote a speech for uh, for Audrey Morgan, so that people have a distinct choice. You know, we had a real kicking in 2019 mm-hmm. and I think we're still reeling a bit from that and we're still in the process of putting together a, a coherent policy program it has you know COVID hasn't helped mm-hmm. you know when you've got a, a, a pandemic it's very difficult to offer to, to build a set of, mm-hmm. uh, of alternative policies when everyone's concentrated on one thing mm-hmm. uh, but there will be the opportunity for us post-COVID to uh, to do that so I think that that's where the answer lies I think we we, we can be radical there is a thirst out there for people to see greater equality in society. Mm-hmm. You know, the Tories call it levelling up. Uh, we have to make sure that we reclaim that because, you know, nobody, there are very few people who say, no, actually what we want is a more unequal society. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to see, you know, people having a fair um, chance at opportunities. They want to see communities help, not left behind. Mm-hmm. And that's where we have to go. Mm-hmm. That's the area where, where, where we have to occupy. We can't let the Tories occupy that area. You know, that's the, that's what, as a party, that's what we, one of the very foundations on which we were built. Mm. But it has been difficult. And for Kia and his, his team, you know, it's it's been so difficult to put mm. forward an alternative when all you're doing is talking about one issue, mm. which is inevitable at the moment. So do you think that then, um, in, in terms of, of getting... Uh... Kistama's name out there more that perhaps he should continue with um, the the touring that he's been done uh, been doing recently where he's been going to different uh, areas of the of the UK meeting people and, and, in, and engaging them on, on that level do you think that there needs to be a bit more of a, a kind of like a ground war campaign of getting him out there as much as possible yes I do uh, the it, it worked for Jeremy Corbyn to an extent we didn't win mm-hmm. the election but it worked for him in 20, uh, 2017 didn't work in 2019 John Major in 1992, mm. you know, standing on a soapbox. People, <laughs> even if people weren't there, they'd see it on TV and think, oh, fair play, you know. Um, fair play to somebody who's out there and willing to, to speak to the public. Now, I, when I was first minister, we had a very tough election in 2016. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was going to take a lot of work for us to, to stay in government. One of the mm-hmm. things that I did uh, was I went around Wales, held public meetings, got shouted at for most of them, uh, but at the end, people were just glad I was there. Mm. We came along, you know, you answered our questions because you know, I didn't, didn't avoid the questions. My team around me, you know, my, my special advisors, they loved it. They, they call it the masochism strategy. And they would often be disappointed if I came off, uh, you know, too too lightly, as they put it. And, and you know, I'd, go, I'd be going to places where there was a very controversial local issue mm. and sit, you know, sitting there and addressing it. So no one could say, well, you know, he's avoiding us and you answer our questions. And I would try and answer their questions. 
Mm. And that worked. I mean, it's, it's not easy, right? It's hard work, but it does work. You know, people will respect you if you will sit there and debate with them. Mm. And if you sit there and argue back, you know, sometimes you argue back with them and you put your case very strong. They prefer that mm. to somebody who they see as avoiding them. Mm-hmm. And that is, it's hard work if you're in politics. It can be unpleasant at times, mm. but that's what you signed up to. Uh, and it, it, I say it worked for us in 2016. Uh, but do you think that perhaps uh, that seems a bit sort of like almost the opposite in a way of the way that um, Boris Johnson campaigned during the 2019 election? I mean, he avoided the uh, interview with Andrew Neil. There's the famous footage of him hiding in uh, uh, a fridge. Do, do, do you think that perhaps that's... Uh, easier to to do if you're perhaps not the incumbent whereas the incumbent can kind of get away with hiding away uh, a bit and and not putting themselves out there as much well that's not what i did in 2016 mm-hmm. i was the incumbent i still had to do yeah. the, the, the the work i mean boris johnson came into politics with a high profile already mm-hmm. uh, and that certainly helped him and the advice he would have got in 2019 is avoid as many gaffes as possible and that meant keeping him, keeping him away from events because he mm. can't be trusted not to say something daft as we've mm. seen again this, uh, this <laughs> the past two weeks uh, and that worked for him because mm. all they had to do in 2019 really was play safe mm. and they did and they won well, we can't do that uh, we have to go out there and uh, in time people you know word spreads mm. you know people will say oh you know, Keir Starmer was there and he said this and uh, even if somebody wasn't there they get, they get, they understand that Keir Starmer's out there mm-hmm. listening to people. Yeah. And if politicians get that, can get that reputation and earn and deserve that reputation, mm-hmm. it does work in not the short term, but it does work in the medium term. Mm. I'd just like to turn to one of uh, Boris Johnson's predecessors for a moment, because of course, yesterday uh, we heard uh, further revelations about David Cameron's work uh, with Lex Greensill and Greensill International regarding the amount he's alleged um, to have earned uh, working for them. Now, of course, you will have come into contact with David Cameron when you were first minister and he was prime minister. I mean, what do you think about these uh, uh, allegations as to how much he was uh, paid by Lex Greensill? I I don't don't know what he was paid. What I can say is that it's always a mistake to lobby ministers individually mm. by phone. It's something I would never do. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, there's a rule against it, actually. Mm. But, you know, sensibly, you know, you can't, you can't use back doors that might be open to you at the expense of someone else. And, you mm. know, he's been caught out in terms of doing that. I mean, the amount of money he's earned is beyond my understanding, to be honest. <laughs> uh, but that, that's the, you have to be, you have to be very careful Mm-hmm. when you're advising businesses that you, that you don't give them the impression that you have access to back doors mm-hmm. that you can exploit. Because not only is that, is that not right ethically, but secondly, it puts pressure on your former ministerial colleagues. I mean, you know, most of the people who are in government now, people I originally appointed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not really fair to, to, if, if I would have ring them up and say, Look, can you do me a little favour on this? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they might feel obliged in some way. It's strong. Mm-hmm. It's just wrong. And I think, I think the way he did it was... Ill-advised. Mm. Was it something that you felt was unexpected from having worked with him, or, or, or was it something that you weren't entirely surprised about having come into contact and worked with him? Well, it's not, I mean, I, it's not him particularly, but certainly mm. there are many in the Conservative Party who make a lot of money after they uh, after they finish in politics, and it's not 
and surprise me because that's mm. the sort of that's the sort of money that's available to them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there we are. I mean, I, 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 you know, it's a lot of money and more than I would have thought you would have you would have earned. But there we are. It's the world they live in. Yeah. Um, now, as you mentioned, um, actions like this aren't illegal. That's the you know he's he's not broken any laws. Do you think though that it requires a shake up in the way that uh, government is arranged? That there are more. Um, uh, stringent investigations as to how former ministers and former prime ministers interact with businesses and potentially use the contacts that they have uh, gained whilst in office subsequently? Well, there are rules in mm-hmm. place. Um, the system is not brilliant that, mm-hmm. that, um, that deals with those rules. But ultimately, you have to strike a balance because people do a right doing a living after they've left politics. What would they do? We can't yeah. work their way. You know, if I, you know, for example, some of the organisations I work for, you know, for example, I, 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 Aberystwyth University, where I'm a mm-hmm. professor. Now, obviously, the Welsh government part funded Aberystwyth University as it does with yeah. other universities. <laughs> but the fact that that happened does that mean, therefore, I shouldn't go there? Or, mm. or, you know, there's a, there's a, you have to be sensible mm-hmm. in terms yes. of. Where the uh, where the limits are, clearly, you know, being brought on board as a consultant to lobby your former colleagues over a contract, mm. you know, that's yeah. obviously very very <laughs> difficult. But that's, that's ill advised, if I can put it. You know, very advised to uh, to do that. On the other hand, you know, what I've been surprised, some of the work I've done has been to advise businesses generally on how government works. You'd be surprised that mm. how little is is understood. Mm. But the the way government works, and, and that's you know that's just basically explaining to people how a particular system works. It doesn't give the, you know that, that's that's something that's available to anybody who asks mm-hmm. really, you know, just any particular yeah. person. So the it's a it's a tougher mm. call than it appears to be when you're talking mm. about rules. Yeah. Uh, now you mentioned uh, obviously your work at um, Aberystwyth University, and today is A level results day. Um, there have been some suggestions that perhaps uh, there may have been a degree of grade inflation related to um, A-levels. Uh, do you think that um, the suggestions that there has been um, grade inflation, that this may put more pressure on universities with more people being able to get into entrances in, in certain universities, is a, a reasonable argument? Or do you think that this is uh, merely a, a means of perhaps doing down uh, students and teachers who have had to work under increasingly difficult conditions because of the pandemic? Well, I think there has been great inflation because mm-hmm. um, teachers' assessments are never uh, reflected completely in exam results. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a natural tendency for teachers perhaps to sometimes look favourably in terms of grades. You know, most, you know teachers mm-hmm. do a good job. And I'm the son of two teachers, one of whom was an exams officer mm-hmm. and who saw the system work from the inside. And he, you know, he would say to you... Um, well, most teachers are pretty accurate, but there are some who are not. And he, he gave you any number of stories of schools he went to, other teachers in three grades by three grades. Yeah. Uh, a small minority, but nevertheless, it did happen, which is why you need a system of moderation mm-hmm. yeah. uh, for that to, um, to to ensure fairness. Um, I don't think it's a sustainable system. Mm-hmm. You know, saying, okay, it's for teachers to decide what grades um, young people get. How do you moderate that? Uh, how do you stop teachers coming under pressure from parents mm-hmm. to inflate grades? You know, this idea that well, there's a school on the road, you know, there's a teacher that will give, will give a bet my child a better grade than you will. You know, I mm-hmm. can see that happening. Yeah. Uh, it will happen if this system continues. Uh, and that puts teachers under hugely unfair you know, pressure. 
I think it's been exceptional. The last year, year or two have been exceptional years, to be honest. And so they've, they've had to be exceptional um, measures taken. Mm-hmm. But it, it's not helpful in the long term. Universities will just bump their grades up. Yeah. If the universities think the grades aren't reliable, they'll bump the grades up. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't help anybody in the end. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were a university admissions student and you saw all of a sudden loads and loads of A's and A stars coming through, you'd increase your grades. Yeah. Because you'd know full well that this is, this is normal. It's not, it's not, there's been a sudden increase in the ability of students. It's just the way the system's worked uh, in, in the past two years. So, yeah, there'll, there'll be youngsters today who'll be celebrating hard-earned grades. But I think as a whole, the system will, will come back into balance and the universities will just put their grades up. Mm, yeah. Um, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. It's been uh, wonderful uh, speaking to you. And I have one uh, final question. We've discussed coronavirus uh, a certain amount, uh, a little bit, but perhaps not a great deal. And we've also mentioned the vaccination programme, which is easing things and making things uh, better for people and ensuring that, you know, society can return to, or at least seem to begin to return to a certain amount of normalcy, though, of course, it's not uh, back to normal. But when things are properly uh, back to normal, when things are back to as they were before the pandemic. What one thing that you haven't been able to do because of the pandemic are you most looking forward to being able to do again? I'd take a week off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's um, it's a funny old thing because we, we um, you don't realise um, how much you miss things, do you, when, mm. until yeah. they're gone? It'd be nice just to go away somewhere. Uh, and just a week, just to, just to chill. I mean, the, the irony is this year is the first year since 1998 when I haven't been bound by school terms. <laughs> that must be away in October, not in all. Yeah. Of course, we'll be able to go. So uh, it'll be nice just to be able to get away, recharge your batteries. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that, that's, and, and yeah, go watch, go watch some rugby or some football. Just watch it. <laughs> yeah. You know, live. I mean, God, what's the last time I watched a live game of rugby? Or, I mean, it's just, you know, that, it's that kind of stuff. <laughs> You know, enjoy a day out because I'm a big sports fan so yeah, yeah. for me it would be those two things being able to travel a bit more yeah uh, and secondly yeah being able to go and watch a game well hopefully you will be able to to get out and travel a bit more and go and see a, a, a great game of rugby soon Carwin thank you once again for coming on the podcast if people want to find out more about you uh, follow you where should they go well uh, I'm on Twitter my handle is at amcarwin uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. You can uh, you can find me there. Uh, yeah, I am on Instagram, but I don't <laughs> use it. Uh, I'm on Facebook, but to be honest, my Facebook page is only for people who know me. Absolutely. I'm facing Facebook page when I was a politician, but I closed that down. <laughs> won't get yes, unless you know me, you won't get you won't <laughs> you won't get into Facebook as a Facebook friend. But Twitter or LinkedIn, I go there. Fantastic. Well, thank you once again for coming on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.